Hello and welcome to the fifth instalment of Guido Talks. Don't forget, if you'd prefer to listen to us rather than watch us, you can find us on all of your usual favourite podcast apps. Just find out how at orderorder.com. My name's Tom Harwood, and yet again I am joined by Guido Fawkes, founder and editor-in-chief Paul Staines, along with reporter Christian Cowgey. And you're watching or listening to or existing with Guido Talks, where we round up our favourite stories of the last week and chat through them a little bit for your entertainment in this lockdown season. So let's kick off this week with a resounding victory that occurred on Friday. And that's in our transparency campaign uh, to do with activists on television. So can you tell us a bit of background about this story, Paul? Well, for a long time, I think a lot of people have wondered why it is that these incredibly articulate, telegenic, uh, gobby uh, nurses and doctors and professors seem to be so left-wing. And every time we dig into them, it turns out that it's because they are left-wing activists. Um, today was a case that uh, we had a teacher who was a mental activist that we had highlighted uh, last week, and this time when she was on Sky News, uh, to our surprise, she first appeared as a teacher, then she appeared as a teacher and a union activist in the captions underneath, and finally, a teacher and momentum activist. So, you know, we congratulate Sky News on doing what we've been asking people to do, which is just tell the viewers where the person, that talking head on telly, is coming from. Because so often, and I think a lot of people aren't very political, which probably doesn't include people uh, listening to this, don't realise that that person saying the sky is going to fall on my head and everything's terrible, it's all Boris Johnson's fault, is actually an actual communist. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems that there's quite a wide array of support for this initiative. We've seen people uh, in the political sphere, not just from the right, but also from the centre, not so much for the left, coming out in favour of Guido's campaign to uh, accurately label people on television. Of course, this isn't about stopping people um, going on television. Of course, people who are left-wing activists should be allowed on the telly, just as right-wing activists should be allowed on the telly. But audiences should be able to know uh, if they're listening to an activist when they're uh, when they're being spoken to, but there was a uh, news <laughs> Yeah, go on. You got to let someone else in now and then, Tom. So something that strikes me is that when you go on, as you so often point out, and you've got your little show reel that you uh, put out there on Twitter, because they always say, "Oh, why don't they uh, identify you?" and Every time you or me go on TV, it's always right wing or Brexiteer, you know, or Boris supporter. So I don't have the very, very least. So from Guido Fox, they can too. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly, exactly, and 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 it's no way. It becomes more important, I think, also as as the media go down the route of these antagonistic arguments between left-wing activists and right-wing activists as that populates the the media landscape more because it does wonders for views retrospectively and at the time if they're going to go down the route of having more opinion rather than 
just straight fact, then it becomes um, a complete necessity. But also, this isn't the first time Sky have done it. They also did it with Professor John Ashton a few weeks ago, where he was introduced as a a former Labour member, and he absolutely went off the rails at the suggestion of the transparency. So, you know, hopefully Sky um, will lead the way in terms of the mainstream broadcasters, and uh, some of the the others can follow suit. Yeah, it does look like that this is a campaign where we are winning, where truth and justice is prevailing. However, there was one Sky television presenter who was not entirely on board with that uh, on Friday. Paul, can you tell us a bit more about that? Listen, I don't know what's happened between you, Tom, and Adam Bolton. I wish I did. <laughs> the pair of you have obviously got off on a wrong footing and, you know, I think, I think Brexit has pushed people quite hard and maybe some Sky presenters. But Adam Bolden is not a bad guy. I mean, when I first started out doing Guido, Adam was almost the nicest person, the most welcoming person. I would be at these kind of drinks parties, and this would be 10, 15 years ago, and he would always be welcoming. He said some very nice things. He was very encouraging. So I don't know why Adam, who I consider to be one of the friendliest uh, anchormen I, I know, has got such a bee in his bonnet about us of lately. But it's definitely you, Tom, not me. It's interesting. <laughs> you know what? I've spoken to some other people who are sort of ERG adjacent in the sort of media world, and it does seem that something might have changed in how he was. Obviously, I've I've only ever met him over a in front of a camera. I've never met him in a social setting and we haven't ever been able to have a conversation as people. I don't know if that would probably, if that might help uh, the relationship at all, but clearly the man doesn't like me. And I think it, and I think that there's something there in his Twitter conduct, in his conduct, uh, in interviews. We've seen it in plenty of interviews from, with people from think tanks as well as uh, Brexit leaning journalists there does seem to be a lack, of Im- a, a lack of impartiality there. And it does seem to be very, very curious, the vitriol with which he speaks, particularly on Twitter, and particularly with which he attacks people who are many, many years younger than him. Oh, stop being a snowflake. You know, I'm going <laughs> to stand up for Adam here. You know, as we know, because we've got hundreds of thousands of followers as well, when you're on Twitter, you get a lot of people you know, saying crap about you all the time. And maybe he hasn't had enough patience. But I don't think Adam is one of the bad guys. He's one of the good guys. We must have him on as a guest when we return to Westminster. Well, we should. Do you know what? I, I would like to go for a pint with the guy because I think that he probably has a caricature of me in his head. Um, and, and that's something that hasn't been able to get over. There's been a couple of times when I've been on the telly with him. There was one time with Gina Miller, where I think he was um, not the happiest that, that um, I, I quoted something from the Conservative manifesto that he and both him and Gina Miller said wasn't in the Conservative manifesto, but it turns out it was. That probably didn't go down that well. And there was another time when I was on a panel with um, him presenting and Jolyon Morm and Joanna Cherry, the SNP MP and the Remain lawyer activist. And so it was two Remainers 
um, and me. And I, I happened to point out the composition of the panel on the show. And that didn't go down uh, too well either. I think there was one point where he referred to Jolly and Morn as an impartial lawyer. Jolly, and take a sort of impartial lawyer's view. Impartial. Do you, th do you think that... I'm a... And I think if there's one word to describe <laughs> Jolly and Morn, impartial does not really fit the bill. Neither um, does lawyer, so... <laughs> Well, I mean, if you want to, if you want to look across at, at Jolly and Morn's uh, litany of losses, you can find them all documented on the Guido Fawkes website. But moving on from the sort of navel gazing and introspection, PMQs this week was interesting. We finally had a bit of uh, humility handed to Keir Starmer. Tell us about it, Christian. Well, he's had a wonderful uh, first few weeks, certainly in terms of um, media coverage. Um, but we did see a first chink in the armour uh, really uh, properly come to light this week at PMQs. Uh, it wasn't the first time, but it was certainly the most remarked upon where he did a sort of classic robot thing that we saw Corbyn do fairly often, which was turn up with his pre-scripted questions and just be intent on on asking them and not actually listening to what the prime minister has said uh before asking that question and if you listen to the very successful leaders of the oppositions or certainly the ones that flourished at prime minister's questions they'll tell you that pmqs I think when you're doing it right should be more difficult for the leader of the opposition because it's not just about turning up with a script, you are actually on the back foot because the Prime Minister turns up with a huge red folder of hours of preparation put together by civil servants. And the leader of the opposition has to be able to think on their feet. And we saw Keir couldn't do that. And one of the recurring problems he is going to have is um, coming up with a personality and trying to come across as a bit more... Uh, enthusiastic, because uh, otherwise we're going to go into the 2024 election and there are going to be a lot of parallels between him and Theresa May. I think the they're already starting to eke out. I mean, watching that clip, it was just extraordinary. Boris, Boris said exactly the date by which contact tracing is going to be rolled out, that we'll have 25,000 contact tracers in this country by the 1st of next month. And then Keir Starmer stands up and basically says... Can you confirm to me that we will have contact tracing in place by the 1st of next month? But Boris is just almost flummoxed by this question because that's literally what he just said. It's very peculiar. It's like Keir Starmer was in a different world while Boris was speaking and not listening to what was being said. The Keir bot, I think was the phrase we used, that the Keir bot replaced uh, the forensic examinations. The thing about PMQs, which is different from a courtroom, of course, is that in a courtroom, the defendant, when he's being cross-examined, doesn't usually anticipate the next question. And that is a, a much more dynamic situation than the linear process that is a, uh, a cross-examination. I think that's very, very perceptive. Um, and, and obviously, the more people that are in Prime Minister's questions, the less like a courtroom it becomes, the more like a debating chamber it becomes. And obviously, that's the realm, the theatre almost, where Boris thrives most um but 
that's that's PMQs. Let's leave that to a side because there was a very interesting report that we covered um, earlier this week at the start about care homes. And care homes obviously started off being this this idea that the UK was almost uniquely poor on care homes with regard to COVID, that um, we had failed compared to other countries with regard to uh, percentage deaths or whatever within the care sector. But there was a report from the EU that uh, seemed to suggest that's not quite true. Paul, can you talk us through that a little bit more? Well, I think the care homes, the way the media have been presenting it, it has been, let's, let's be honest, a uh, very difficult situation. But when you do an international comparison, the UK has fared little worse than anywhere else. In fact, a lot of other countries have done a lot worse. I mean, uh, some countries have big care homes and usually state-run care homes. Uh, when you look at what's happened in those, it's been equally as bad and in many cases a lot worse. In fact, the UK came um, towards the better end of the spectrum. So I'm not one to minimise the situation. I think there's a sort of tendency for people to be- want to believe the political reasons that this, this government's doing uniquely badly, when in fact, all around the world, it's hurting and the median age of people dying from coronavirus is, I think, 80. It is happening mostly in care homes. That's the same in all countries. Same here in Ireland as well, unfortunately. Mm. Well, this was, this was the political argument that was sort of started to gather steam last week, that the reason behind the high death toll within the UK was that we had been uniquely bad on care homes. But this EU report just just, just completely crushed that as a possibility because only around, or I think less than a third of the deaths have occurred in the care home sector. Whereas in other European countries, it's been more than half of their deaths or around half of their deaths. So this is the real crucial distinction. Obviously, there have been failings, but this specific idea about care homes doesn't look like it's it's the goer it looked like it was last week. In truth, all these statistics won't really be worth analysing until in a year's time or so, because then we'll mm-hmm. see how uh, many excess deaths there were compared to the average. And that's the only true way we're going to know how ineffective or effective the measures any country took were. Well, moving on from the grim subject of excess deaths, let's move on to more ridiculous news. And for that, we are going to move north of the border to uh, an amendment that was passed in the Scottish Parliament this week, exempting 16 and 17-year-olds from having to pay fines for breaking the Scottish uh, coronavirus lockdown. Now, this was an amendment that was posed by a Green MP who's sympathised with communism in the past, as we've covered on the Guido Fawkes website. Um, And it was backed by the Scottish government. It ended up passing, meaning that now in Scotland, at the age of 16 and 17, you can vote for politicians, but you're exempt from the normal laws of the country. This seems to be utterly Bonkers. If you're going to have a lower voting age, surely you have to bring responsibilities with that right. You can't stratify society like this and say that, yes, in some aspects they're children, but in other aspects they're adults. No, pick an age. 
pick an age where people take on responsibility and gain rights. This whole uh, imbalanced approach, I think, is deeply damaging societally. It's the whole flaw with the votes at a younger age argument, which is that they want to give people greater rights, but they don't want to embody them with greater responsibility, which is why I would always say, if you're going to argue for votes at 16, morally, you also have to say, well, they're old enough to drink alcohol or buy cigarettes. Across the spectrum, it has to be consistent. And once again, you've seen people, parties like the Greens and the SNPs effectively admitting that 16 and 17 year olds aren't adults. They just want the uh, majority of their votes at election time because that is, by and large, how younger people vote. So, uh, it's, guys, you're, you're nearer 16 than I am. Uh, what do you want the age of majority to be for, if it's going to be consistent? 18. 18 is, is an internationally recognised uh, age of adulthood. Um, obviously, you know, uh, some of my Conservative friends would be happier to see the voting age linked with land ownership, uh, but I'm more of a Democrat. Um, oh, do, do you know what? When I was 16, I think I probably would have wanted it to be at medical 16. decisions when they were 16. I was an idiot. I was complete. I was still am, but, you know... Uh, Do you know I what? I, I actually, I, I don't think we should base this on when people are sort of idiots or not, because my God, there are a lot of idiots who are over the age of 18. And I'm not sure that we want to be perpetuating an argument that might disenfranchise older idiots. So um, really, just in terms of equality, let's base this on a on an arbitrary age that is obviously going to cut off a lot of mature younger people but it's but it's it's going to be consistent and enable society to sort of have that kind of balance and yeah ultimately I, I there's a story actually back from when parliament was hung when all these votes were on knife edges when we started to hear little uh, words about perhaps amendments being laid to uh to lower the franchise to 16 I heard of a plot by Tory backbenchers to start tabling lots and lots of amendments to any move to bring the voting age down to 16 that would also bring the driving age, the drinking age, the smoking age, the gambling age, all of these ages down as well, and almost dare the opposition to be inconsistent. I'm going to resist the temptation to ask you, should under 18 year olds be allowed to make life changing decisions. For instance, <laughs> well, I think in the, in the country, well, we'll, we'll move on. Um, <laughs> I'm not doing that on that Friday was, afternoon. That was a, that was a wise decision from me while I've, <laughs> while I've had pints. Um, no, it's currently the law they can't. Anyway. Um, the Labour conference has been cancelled. Cowgee, let's chat about that. Oh, I'm, I'm very worried. I'm very worried now that Tory conference is going to get cancelled. Uh, it's, it's, I look forward to conference more than I do uh, a summer holiday. Um, but of course, we've certainly seen uh, the Lib Dems have also cancelled theirs and they're being more cautious about this. Um, Tory conference hasn't yet been cancelled, but uh, there was a very interesting piece this week in the Financial Times uh, regarding the uh, finances of the Conservative Party. Um, unlike Labour and the Lib Dems, they haven't furloughed any members of staff 
And at the same time, obviously, they're not really getting any donations. And party conference is a huge um, part of their annual uh, fundraising uh, attempt. So it would be a massive hit, especially when, if you think about it, uh, party conferences in September, a few months later, we're going to have uh, two sets of local elections at once, which is going to be very draining on party resources. But if it's going to risk a second peak and it's going to be a load of hungover, drunk young people whose immune systems aren't functioning properly, nothing about them is functioning properly, uh, I speak from experience, um, that it might have to be the only option. Oh, I need to Google Airbnb's refund policy. That's, uh, it's the one year yeah. I was organised. The one year, of course, will be the one year where it all goes to pot. <laughs> yes, but if it means not having to go to Birmingham, then there are some silver, <laughs> silver lining. Birmingham's got some pretty wonderful McDonald's from my experience, so uh, I might have to challenge you on that point. <laughs> um, but moving, moving on, um, we've seen... This week, the Labour Party really prevaricating on a lot of issues in a similar way to how Jeremy Corbyn ran the party. This is not what we expected necessarily from Keir Starmer. That's supposed stalwart. Um, what's been going on, Paul? I haven't got the foggiest idea. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> this is... This is the, the multiple stories we've been running over the last week about Labour's flip-flops. Oh, I zoned out. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? Do you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll intro the stories better because um, what, we, what we saw on schools uh, today published on the website um, is that Keir Starmer last month was... Uh, agitating for schools to be one of the first things that open when the lockdown starts to be wound down, talking about all of the uh, horrible effects for particularly more disadvantaged children that closing schools would uh, enact and and uh, almost persecute younger students. That's what he was advocating last month. This month he's advocating, hold on a second, we shouldn't open up the schools. Something I think that has to do with the uh, unions saying, hold on a minute, we pay the bills, we don't want to go to work yet. And you see the whole change in his tone. Whereas a month ago, he was worried about the dangers of rising inequality, and that the people who would suffer the most, the children who would suffer the most from not going to school, were those from lower socioeconomic groups. Now, he's worried about protecting the welfare and well-being of teachers, you know, it's a quick switch and a quick flip-flop and not the only flip-flop, as you rightly point out. Yeah, it does seem that we're back to those sort of Ed Miliband days where the unions have extraordinary influence over the Labour Party, not just on their initial positions, but on the way that they sort of bend with union thought. Whereas under Jeremy Corbyn, he'd always out-union the unions on left-wing policy. Now we, are, now we are seeing the Labour Party being pushed and pulled around by that union movement once more. Um, but that's not the only uh, sort of flip-flop position that they've had, of course, because their Brexit policy, we're getting almost deja vu now over this hokey-cokey in-out situation that the Labour Party 
has been pursuing. At first, the party was saying that uh, that the deadline should be extended. Uh, and then Keir Starmer came out with an almost a surprisingly strong line saying, no, we're going to hold the government to account. This is the deadline, um, implying certainly to their then lost northern voters that they could perhaps be trusted again on Brexit, only for then this week them to, to, to suddenly say that the deadline should be extended yet again, that, uh, that we should continue to pay billions into the EU and have EU law supreme to UK law for yet longer, extending this extension transition period. Um, and actually, this was quite an influential... His heart is with an extension, but his head and electoral logic says that if he wants to win over those red wall seats that he lost, he should stop looking like someone who's trying to frustrate Brexit. His heart is clearly against, uh, uh, you know, carrying on and getting out before the end of the year. But electoral uh, positioning suggests that it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be seen to be him who's dragging an extension out of the government. That's why I think you're, you're seeing this to mm. and fro. And once not- again, there's a massive problem for the Labour leadership, which is the gulf between the Labour membership and the public and the former Labour voters they need to win back is such a massive gulf and has been for a very long time that Starmer is trying to his best ability to transition from speaking to the people who are already with him during the leadership election to trying to look like someone who those former Red Wall voters can return to. And it's quite a difficult job straddling that divide. Certainly, and it's not just Keir Starmer, because of course, one of the people who almost let the Labour cat out of the bag in terms of pushing for an extension last weekend was Rachel Reeves, who came up against uh, Michael Gove in the House of Commons on Tuesday, and Michael Gove seemed to reference our story uh, from the dispatch box, whereby he was talking about Labour's in-out positions over an extension or not an extension, and the absolute befuddlement that this has left people with a sense of. Um, he, did, but, he did seem to be quoting uh, us word for word on, on the flip and the flop and the where and the when. And, uh, you know, he is someone who does read the site. I know that from personal experience. Good to see we're reaching the corridors of power. But um, rounding off uh, one of the one of the days this week, we we had a, a, a lighter hearted story about how sexy, frankly, the British public found MPs. Can you tell us about that, Calgie? Yeah, I, I'm just laughing at, at the script, the Tom intro, Calgie on sexy MPs. It really is one of those things you would only read as, uh, as someone who works at Guido Forks. Uh, so yeah I mean funnily enough it was a very popular article uh, a study analyzing Google search data uh, for phrases like pretty Patel sexy or pretty Patel hot Uh, came up with some uh, remarkable findings and uh, funnily enough pretty Patel was up there Uh, I'm sure she can thank the Tory base for that along with Esther McVeigh and Angela Rayner, and then the wild card, Theresa May. Um, uh, I was going to say power must be sexy to some people, but of course she had very little. 
uh, and uh, Penny Morden in lagging behind in seventh. Um, and and Irene, really, the 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 other aspect of the story is is women are not that turned on by male politicians, <laughs> as is <laughs> revealed by uh, fleeting mentions of Raab and Corbyn, but uh, not nearly as many as the women. <laughs> And of course, the, the the story here is really the more famous a politician is, the more likely someone's going to search their name with the word sexy next to it. But at the end of this story, uh, we revealed a little tidbit of information that a more equitable assessment of the sexiness of, of members of parliament is soon to be hitting our computer screens with the relaunch of famous within Westminster website of called sexymp.co.uk. Christian, what is sexymp.co.uk? Uh, it was a wonderful website back in the day. Uh, every MP was on there and you would, you would get a random selection of 1v1 and you would click through and it would accumulate. And after a while, it built up a pretty good picture of uh, the sexiest MPs, but obviously it's not uh, been, uh, it hadn't been updated for about half a decade. And the, the sort of the pre-2015 Parliament had quite a few older members of Parliament, a few of the older Tories, and there's been a lot of reshuffling and refreshing of Parliament since then. So it will be a, a much more entertaining game. And the question is, will the parliamentary authorities once again add the website to the blacklist uh, so MPs can't be distracted during the day job? <laughs> now, I was I speaking just, to I could just the... see Andrew Bridgen there is pressing F5 on himself all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, MPs who are interested in the site are in luck because I was speaking to the founder of the site who will be relaunching it soon who has said that MPs, if they're unhappy with the, with the parliamentary portraits, which a lot of MPs actually don't like a lot, um, those sort of quite stark pictures on grey backgrounds that MPs have um, officially, they can now send in their own pictures to the website if they would think that that might give them a better shot of doing better. But obviously, <laughs> all that's to come. The problem is that it will be very obvious which MPs have submitted their own photographs because it'll be the ones that aren't the official ones. That's true, that's true. They've got to take that risk. It depends depends whether they want to be seen as one of the sexier MPs or not. <laughs> but um, I think that's probably where we should wrap up for today. Uh, it's nicer to end on a lighter note. So thank you everyone for watching or listening. Um, and have a wonderful bank holiday weekend. Uh, stay alert, uh, take care, and, and have a good one. Bye from us. Thanks, the NHS. Oh. <laughs>